Chapter 3 this morning, please. Ruth, chapter number 3. And let us go ahead and stand. You did not see Wormleys have made it safely back to Africa. Not sure what day of the week it is or what time it is, but they are there. Ruth chapter number three, let's begin in verse number one. We'll read the chapter this morning. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man, until he have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet. And lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. And she went down unto the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. <clears throat> Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. And she laid his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another, and he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her, and she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. She said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. And let's pray. <laughs> Father, I pray that you had Help me this morning to speak to your people who is sufficient for the task at hand. Only you, 
And therefore, we ask your help both in the speaking and the understanding part. Minister your word to your people for their nourishment, please. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. I'm going to ask you to begin this morning not by thinking about the book of Ruth just yet, but thinking about the way we interpret a book like Ruth. Academically, the world of biblical interpretation is called hermeneutics. It comes from the Greek word. It's actually found in John chapter 1, verse 42. Simon was called Cephas, which is by interpretation or hermeneutic, a stone. Not quite half of the Bible comes to us as stories. God just tells us stories. We love stories. We, that's just, it's just, it's the way we were created. It is the way our creator relates to us. We love stories. We love stories whether we're reading a story in a book, whether we're watching a story on TV or a computer or our phone. We like stories. We, we get stories. We understand stories. And Bible stories come to us just like that in story form. They are historical in nature. They're not contemporary stories. Nobody gets on an airplane. Nobody consults their iPhone. They are inspired stories. They are written by God himself for our purposes. And because they are divine and inspired and historical, they are always appropriate and applicable to us. Like any story, <clears throat> there are characters. And our story revolves around three clearly human characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, with, as always, the supporting cast. But one of the things we want always to remember, folks, about Bible stories is that the real hero of every story is God. He is the protagonist of all Bible stories. And the real antagonist, and he really has a minor role in this. I'm not suggesting that Satan is not a part of this by any stretch of the imagination. He is the God of this world always at work. But there's not a clear tension between God and Satan in this. But Satan is always the clear adversary. The Bible is a, is a book that talks about the conflict between God and Satan as it plays out through the lives of human beings. And all of those human beings are going to be either on God's side or Satan's God, side. And they are therefore, we always in this narrative are functioning as what are technically known as agonists. God is at work, Satan is at work. The character is the recipient of that action. How do they respond? How do they think? Who do they follow? Some narratives <clears throat> really deal with very large issues just in the telling of the story. 
Other narratives are a little more narrow in their focus, like the book of Ruth. It is a story about redemption. It is about the way in which God preserves a people for the sake of his own name. So one of the questions then becomes, in light of the nature of what the books are, here's the problem, folks. What, What do we tend to do with Bible narratives? We tend to read them looking for the moral. And so the moral of the story is, well, what would the moral of the story of Ruth be? Good things come to them who wait. Not that the book doesn't reveal to us God's ideal for morality. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when we read a narrative, when we read a Bible story and we get to the end and we go, right, we we, we tend, and we're adults, and there's a place to do this with children, but... We, we tend to read the narratives. I'm not trying to be critical. I hope this would not be true of us. But people tend to read all the Bible narratives as if we were simply elementary age children. Right? As if the whole point of the story, for instance, of Jonah in the whale is that bad things will happen to you if you don't do what God said. You might get eaten by a whale. That's something to tell a five-year-old. We need also to be be careful about treating these narratives as if they are entirely allegorical. In other words, folks, as if there is some secret hidden meaning in the fact that this is happening at barley harvest and that God has a message that he's communicating to you through the harvest of barley. And if you go back far enough in church history, there are lots of people who dealt with the Bible. They're endeavoring to be faithful to the Bible. It's all God's word. It all has great meaning. So barley must not mean barley, it must mean something else. But it's just a barley harvest, and barley harvest is part of the everyday life of a Jew. Or not everyday life, but I mean growing barley and harvesting barley. And it would be like Nebraskans trying to find some secret meaning in corn or soybeans. It's It's a part of who we are as a people. We live in an agricultural part of the world. And we we plant corn and soybeans and we harvest corn and soybeans and it's just a large part of our life. Neither do we want to come to the narratives and treat them as some kind of how-to manual. Boy, is this a is this a how-to manual for young young adults? Right? Here's a how-to man. Guys, let me, let me, or girls, let me tell you how to find a husband. Let some other woman pick a suitable mate. Sneak into his house in the middle of the night. And then when they wake up wondering who you are and why you're there, propose to them. This is obviously not a how-to man. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> don't, don't do that. And then don't tell somebody that Largent told me to do that. I'm, I don't, I don't want to be on some witness stand trying to explain how that is not really what I said. 
And again, from a preaching standpoint, folks, part of the complication of preaching a narrative like Ruth is that it takes all four chapters of the book to bring the narrative to a conclusion. And, you know, a, a message and a, <clears throat> you know, you know, preaching a message from one part of the book of Ruth is kind of like giving you a summary of a movie from the first 20 minutes of the movie. <clears throat> I can tell you what's going on to that point, but I don't yet know how the book resolves. So broadly within the story of Ruth, what we have is the story of a gracious God providing redemption for someone who really does not merit it, who is truly an outsider whose past is somewhat colored. This is totally consistent with the overall message of salvation for all. None of us deserve it. It is Our salvation is not merited. It is the result of God's kindness. And yet it is nevertheless a very real salvation and hopefully precious to us who have it. So Naomi has gone with her family, whether willingly or unwillingly, we do not know, to a place that God did not want his people to be, Moab, for reasons that cannot really be defended spiritually because the famine was part of God's judgment upon this group of people. And while she is there, her two sons, Malon and Kilian, marry Moabitish women, which they are not permitted to do. And the two sons die, and when Naomi decides to return home, with some degree of surprise, Ruth announces that she is going with her and will not be dissuaded. She has committed herself not only to Naomi's homeland and to Naomi personally, but to Naomi's God. And then God graciously provides for both Ruth and Naomi through the graciousness of Boaz. Who in one of those great plot twists is attracted to Ruth. In a very real attraction. But it is not just simply a sensual attraction or even a physical attraction. But it is an attraction based upon her commitment to Jehovah and her commitment to her mother-in-law. This is the type of girl that he would like to call his wife. So that these characters, folks, function, right? And this is, I think, again, something that we would see in many Bible stories. These characters function contrary to the spirit of the age. The book of Ruth begins by telling us what life is like for almost everybody. The days of the judges, when hardly anybody had anything to do with God and any interest in God, when every man was busy doing that which was right in his own eyes, we find some people who are oriented towards doing what God wants done. And these are the characters of the story. In chapter 3 then, our storyline adds to this, right? We have the story of Ruth and her conversion and we've had all of this turning back and returning to the Lord. 
And we have the gracious provision of encountering this man, Boaz, totally accidentally, totally inadvertently. She went out, did what she should have done, and look at what happened to her. She lands in Boaz's field. And now in chapter 3, we are informed that Ruth is willing to respond to the overtures of Boaz's grace. And it takes Naomi to be a little bit of an interpreter to what is happening. And I think that we should think of her in that light. She is, she is, with some divine perspective, no doubt, through the wisdom of her years and the experience of being an Israelite, she is understanding what Boaz is saying in a way that seems to be lost on Ruth. But Ruth is receptive and willing to submit herself to her mother-in-law's advice. Just a couple of things before we look at some things in the text this morning. There, there are some figures, because it, again, it is an old book and an old story, there are some figures of speech that are kind of unusual to us. We'll talk about them. The customs certainly seem to be odd to us. Most of us would not do these kinds of things. But I would say again, as I've mentioned several times, there's nothing in the text that is itself improper. And there is nothing in anybody's conduct that should lead us to think that anybody is being improper. I really do think that it's an injustice to what the picture that the narrator is trying to portray. That these are two upright people, not two questionable people, trying to engage in late night hijinks and not get caught. Righteous people, unusual people, in the world that is filled with unrighteous people. So let's turn our attention then to chapter number 3. In verses 1 through 4, in verses 1 through 4, Naomi demonstrates covenant love for Ruth. And we care about that, folks, because Bible love is doing what is best for the person that you love. It's interesting in our world, right, that the God who identifies himself as love, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That the God who tells us to love each other, that the God who tells us that the benchmark of our obedience to love for him is to do what he says is identified as hateful by the world. For doing things like calling out their sin and questioning their wisdom. But love does what is best for the person that you love. Naomi's love for Ruth is not simply emotional. Although it is no doubt heavily emotional. She loves this young woman. But it is anchored to her understanding of the Bible. Verse number one. My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And this is not the word shalom. Shall I not seek tranquility for you? This is actually the idea of a resting place or a home. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 9, when Noah sent the dove out from the ark, it found no rest for the sole of her foot. Same word. Shall I not seek a home for you? That's what she's asking. You're a young woman. You're a young woman who is recently married. Should, should I not seek a resting place for you 
that is not simply living with your mother-in-law. And there are two things that are going on here, folks. And let me ask you, if you would, to take a moment and turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Because these are things that Naomi is thinking, that Ruth needs to be thinking, and that you and I need to be thinking as well. What is Naomi's agenda? And again, folks, there is more to the story than Naomi thinking, now Boaz is rich, and Boaz has a good job, and Boaz is single, and so we need to connect these two. What she is thinking is actually a reflection of what the Law of Moses teaches. It is a concept known as Leverite marriage. It is marriage to family, which again is just kind of one of those weird things that is a little bit lost on us. We don't function like that, but the Jews do. Deuteronomy 25.5, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. So, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny, and I am certainly not trying to be inappropriate. But gentlemen, if you have a brother, think about the fact that if you lived under the law of Moses and something happened to your brother, you would be expected to marry his widow. You would be expected to marry your sister-in-law. And how you felt about your sister-in-law was not really to be a part of the equation. My sister-in-law? Hate her. But she is your sister-in-law. And you have a responsibility. So a brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child. The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. It's a full marriage, a physical marriage is the idea. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth, in case you have any questions about what is being mentioned in verse number five, shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Which again, this sounds like kind of a quaint and curious custom, but the man is being legally and publicly disgraced for failing to do his duty. That's what's happening. And his entire reputation is being marred. 
He's the man that will not meet his obligations. We would call him a deadbeat father. Right? He's a deadbeat dad. He won't do his duty. So that's one idea that is going on here that is driving what Naomi is up to. She is not just trying to make a love match to an eligible man. And she's certainly not trying to find her young daughter-in-law's sugar daddy. She is recognizing the legal provisions of the Mosaic Covenant for what should be happening. And again, folks, I would suggest to you that this is important because if my proposition to you is that love is doing what is the best for the one that is loved, then what could be more loving than pointing somebody in biblical obedience? Another important concept has the, is the idea of a kinsman who is a redeemer because you perhaps have already thought, but Boaz isn't a brother. And Boaz isn't a brother. Boaz is a relative. But the law of Moses speaks to that as well. You don't need to turn to it. Leviticus 25, 25, if thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it and himself be able to redeem it, and then Leviticus 25, 27 talks about the legal mechanics of how you would value the piece of property. I won't read them, but Right? There are family obligations that are involved both for a dead spouse and for an impoverished person and their land, all of which are designed, folks, to preserve the name of a family in Israel so that they and their land do not get brought into this big conglomeration. I'm, some of you probably are well aware of this and uh, may be lost, and others of you, it was kind of radical to me. When, when we first moved here in 1984, one of the things that the Nebraska legislature had just enacted was a law that prohibited selling Nebraska family farmland to corporations. The fear was that big multinational concerns were going to buy up the farmland and turn Nebraska into a big industrial farming complex owned by a company. And the Nebraska legislature just shut it down. We want to preserve the family farm. One of the law of Moses, we want to preserve the name and preserve the land. So there are legal mechanisms, but not just legal, religiously legal mechanisms. This is what God wants done. And this idea of the kinsman becomes then very big in the story. We will get to that. So when Naomi tells Ruth, I'm not going to go back and read it all, when Naomi tells Ruth to do these things, but this is what she says, right? I want, you to get, I want you to dress nicely. Get all dressed up for this man. And I want you to go into hiding until he's all done eating. And then when he goes to lay down, then I want you to go in and lay at his feet. She's not simply being creative. This is not out-of-the-box thinking. This is a woman who is responding to what she knows the Bible expects, governed by the law of Moses. Boaz is a redeemer, and they need a redeemer, a legitimate one. 
Secondly, Ruth demonstrates faith in the story by following the instructions of Naomi. That's verses 5 through 9. Ruth demonstrates her faith by following the instructions of Naomi. And I'm calling it faith because we've already seen folks that Naomi or that Ruth is more than willing to stand up to her mother-in-law. When her mother-in-law told her to go back home, look, go back home, go to your mother's house, go to your gods, go back home. There's nothing for you with me. Ruth said, no, I'm having none of that. I'm with you. So Ruth is not a pushover and she's not a wallflower and she's not a weak-willed woman. She is a woman who knows her mind and knows her faith and knows what she wants to do. So when Naomi says, here's what you need to do, she just does it. It is an act of faith. In fact, the narrative is just very pointed and abrupt. She said unto her, verse 5, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. I will do what you say. And then she did it. Verse number 6, she went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. She got all dressed up. She went into hiding. She waited until he was done eating. She went and laid down at his feet. And by the way, if I even need to mention this, folks, Right? Two things. Verse number seven, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. Okay, For those of us who are uber, ultra-fundamentalists, I'm in that category, there is no reason to think that Boaz was a total abstainer. He probably wasn't. It was probably wine. But neither is there any reason to believe that Boaz had got a little buzz on. Right? The story is not requiring us to go there. Boaz was a man who had a nice meal and he felt good and he went over to do what, right, what's going to, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen at your house Thursday, but I've already thought about my house Thursday. Right? And we're going to have a really nice meal. I know that. And I'm going to enjoy that meal and I'm going to get up from that table and I'm going to go to my recliner, put my feet up, put on the football game and I'm going to go to sleep. <laughs> and my heart will be merry That's all the story is saying. Boaz had a good meal. He was relaxed. He went over to lay down. And something woke him at midnight. Maybe it was just cold. It's harvest. Maybe it was the Lord. We're not told. But he stirred and he roused. And what in the world? There is a woman laying at my feet. Who are you and what do you want? I am your servant. I'm your servant, Ruth. And then she said, spread your skirt over me. And then she said, you are my kinsman. And if you have a study Bible, you may have a note because we just, for some reason, want to use that Hebrew word as the word goel. You are the kinsman, the redeemer. If you look, verse number 9, Who art thou? She answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid. Two things. If you would turn back to chapter 2 and verse number 12. And if you will indulge me, not license, but a literal word-for-word translation 
Verse number 12, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given to thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose skirt thou art come to trust. It is the same word. Wings and skirt are the same word. She had come to be covered by God's wings and now she is asking to be covered by Boaz's wings. Just like any good story, folks, a writer is going to give us repeated clues. He's going to keep using the same concepts and phrases. Now, neither Ruth nor Boaz know this because they live long before Ezekiel lives. But let me just read to you Ezekiel 16.8 as God describes his relationship with Israel. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. So there is not allegorization, folks, but clear imagery here that to to trust under the wings of Jehovah is to become his, become his and have his protection. And she wants now the same humanly from Boaz. Cover me with your skirt. Make me yours. It is the marriage proposal. When they tell the story to their children, how did you meet? That's a great one. And then then I proposed to your dad. A little weird for Old Testament history. And I think, folks, without trying to press it, I think that we should understand that Naomi has been instructing Ruth, right? That Ruth's faith in Jehovah is not stagnant, that she is learning. She's, she's learning the concept of the kinsman redeemer. She's been acquainted with the text. She knows how to describe yourself, right? Verse number nine, who are you? I am Ruth, your handmaid, your servant. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaiden servant, Because you are a near kinsman. Because you have an obligation and a responsibility. Because you have an opportunity. Not just a burden to bear, but an opportunity to be enjoyed. So Naomi demonstrates her love and Ruth demonstrates her faith. And Boaz demonstrates both God's love and faith in him by promising to take care of Ruth. That's verses 10 through 15. He commends her in verse number 10 for her godly decision making. Again, folks, this man is no lightweight. Not just because he is rich, he is genuinely godly. And look at the perspective that he brings to his outlook on life. Verse 10, blessed be thou the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. You are, you are doing a greater kindness now than you did earlier. You're being kinder in your reaction to me than you have been to your own mother-in-law. Which is, by the way, one of the critical themes mentioned throughout the book of Ruth, right? The, the redemption is an act of mercy. This, this act of kindness 
your loyalty to me overshadows even your loyalty to your mother-in-law. And you're not like everybody else who is simply pursuing young men for a good time. And he commends her as having a good and godly reputation. Verse number 11, Now my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Everybody knows she's a foreigner, but they also know she is a woman of faith. And again, folks, I would just point out that every time the narrator gets an opportunity, he tells you that these are good and godly people, not that they are up to something questionable and shady. And then in verses 12 through 13, he assures her of his commitment to do all that he can do, but there is a glitch. And that is, in this world of kinsmen redeemers, there is one who is closer. So that you are on the, you have the right idea. I mean, this is kind of what Boaz is telling you. You have the right idea. You are pursuing this rightly. But I may not be the guy. Because there is another. And then he makes provision for her, verses 15 through 18. And then this little scene in the story comes to a close. Everybody has to, right? They have to do what we all hate doing most, and that is sitting around and waiting for the resolution. But that's where we are in verse number 18. Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest till he have finished the thing this day. Again, she brings her experience. She brings her perspective. She interprets events accurately. This man is very interested in you. He's not going to let this sit around and go waste. He is going to take action upon it. And so when Ruth returns home, verse number 16, she came to her mother-in-law. She said, who art thou? And that doesn't mean I don't know you. That means, right, the question would be like this. Well, are you going to be Mrs. Boaz or not? That's the question. Are you going to be Mrs. Boaz or not? Who are you? And that part of the story is still unresolved. Three things, folks. <clears throat> Three observations in closing. Three reminders from the story that we have covered. Number one. Love, and we've seen love of both, well, I guess we've seen love by all three characters, but particularly by Naomi and Boaz. Love is commitment to the word and the way of the Lord doing best for the one that you love. Jesus told us that if we loved him, we would keep his commandments. That if we loved him, we will do what he says. We will do what he says, the way that he says to do it. This is love. John 14, 23, if my man love me, he will keep my words. My father will love him. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. Right? The defining element of love is that we desire to do what the Lord says. And we may develop in the course of that, folks, very deep feelings, the best feelings that we can have for the Lord. But right when somebody talks about how they feel and then their actions are disobedient actions, they cannot be described as having biblical love. Love does what God says. 
And Naomi was loving to Ruth by guiding her in obedience to the scripture. Boaz was loving by guiding her into obedience to the scripture. We're going to pursue this, but we have to do it the right way. Secondly, on God's part, God himself is committed to doing all that is necessary and right in the securing of our salvation. And I don't think we can press too hard upon this unknown fellow redeemer. But Boaz didn't, folks, just go, look, I like you, you like me, you're a good person, I'm a good person, you're single, I'm single, let's get married. But we've got to follow all the steps that the law requires to do what would be the right thing to do. And the Bible is very clear, folks. Let me just read to you from Romans chapter 3 that these are the steps that God took in securing our salvation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, So that's all the good and lovely and fun stuff that we've been justified Freely by Christ Jesus in his work, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So God killed Christ to appease his own anger at our sin. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So Christ didn't just die for the sins of us who would come after him, but Christ died for the sins of those who went before him, like Moses for murdering the Egyptian and David for murdering Uriah. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth on Jesus. So God really had two tasks, folks, in the redemption of man. And one of them was the preservation of his own integrity. He couldn't just blow it off. He couldn't just wave his hand and dismiss it. He had to preserve his own integrity. And he did that by laying our sin and guilt upon Christ and punishing him fully what we deserve so that he might be just. I punish sin just like I said. And the justifier, I declare you righteous and lay it on him. All the steps were followed. And thirdly, folks, just a note that, and we see this in Ruth, sometimes obedience to the word does jeopardize our reputation. Not our reputation to God, but our reputation to the eyes of others. And what they did was not morally wrong. But, they all, but Boaz fully understood that it would not be good for any of them if it was publicized that a woman had gone into his bedchamber. Jesus was mocked, not by God, but because of God. Paul was mocked, not by God, but because of God. Called himself a fool. We are fools for Christ's sake. And folks, the reality is that our own obedience to the Scriptures is going to look very weird to unbelieving people. But we are to do it anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. 